Reading from the English Standard Version translation this morning. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Our Father, we would come before you in dependence upon your Holy Spirit. With your word in front of us, we would say, Lord God, what a powerful, powerful word Scripture is. And yet, Lord, the word of truth falls upon deaf ears unless your Holy Spirit will open our ears. The word will fall upon a stony heart unless, Father, your Holy Spirit works to make our hearts pliable so as to receive your word. And we would pray this, Father. We would ask for this because we would ask you to keep making our deepest desire to be those who honor you, love you, serve you, who trust in the work of your Son, who desire to live lives in this world that are godly in Christ Jesus, so that at the end of our days, we may in fact be able to say, Lord, you have been good to us. You have made us glad. Thank you for receiving us into your eternal home. So we pray, Father, for all grace, grace as we listen, grace as we would obey, grace as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We begin this morning by just reminding ourselves of where we are in terms of this new year. Our New Year's Eve service focused upon the extraordinary purpose of the ordinary Christian. And I say ordinary Christian because if you look at the history of Christianity, if, if you look at even the life of the Apostle Paul, whom we would say he is the greatest Christian we have ever, ever read about, would ever know, yet Paul himself would say that he is what he is because of the grace of God. That is, he would say that the extraordinariness of his life had nothing to do with him per se, but had everything to do with God and God's work in him. And so we began 
this year on New Year's Eve by basically saying this. Every ordinary Christian has an extraordinary purpose. The extraordinary purpose of knowing Christ, of serving Christ, and of worshiping Christ. That is, the center point of our lives is ultimately to be the, the whole nature of what worship is as it's centered in God's Son. Because as Jesus said to the woman at the well, the Father seeks those who will worship Him. What is our ultimate destiny and glory? If we know that we're being fit for heaven by the work of Jesus Christ, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, what will be our essential identity all throughout all eternity? We'll be those who find our deepest fulfillment, our deepest understanding of, of eternal life, our deepest joy in giving to God all manner of glory every moment of our eternal existence. When we look to heaven, as we can see it pictured for us in the, in, in the last book, Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5, when we look at those two chapters, what do we see? We see joy expressed in the great worship of all of those angelic beings, which is a testimony to us that the deepest joy that any human being could ever, ever experience is to be right with the living God and to give the living God all glory, all honor, our praise because we love him. So we're looking at worship this month. Last Sunday, we looked at adoration. Biblical worship as adoration. Today, we look at biblical worship as confession. Next week, biblical worship as thanksgiving. And then the last Sunday of the month, biblical worship as supplication. Now, if adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication seem familiar to you, they should. Because every Sunday when you worship, we have this as our primary pattern of biblical worship. What does it mean to worship God? It means to recognize who he is first and foremost. It means to recognize who we are in response to that. It's to be thankful for his grace. And it is then to supplicate him as a great king who's willing to do great things on behalf of his people. That's worship. Now, it's interesting to me that many people who are Christians, and then, of course, a whole slew of people who aren't Christians, look at the Old Testament with some kind of sense that, wow, yeah, the, the Old Testament is about God. The Old Testament is about worship. But how very strange Old Testament is. How very uh, bizarre Old Testament worship is. In fact, how very barbaric Old Testament worship is. And so even some Christians today think that, that worship, our worship, our New Testament worship, has little to do with what was going on in the Old Testament. But I want us to recognize that the great concern of Old Testament worship is also the great concern that we have today. The great concern of Old Testament worship is this. How do sinful human beings worship a holy, holy, holy God? A holy God for whom all sin is a barrier between him and us. And so the Old Testament has set forth its pattern of worship in such a way that it demonstrates how that problem is addressed. And so Old Testament worship has a threefold emphasis, a threefold pattern, a threefold concern. It expresses who God is in all of the magnificence of his holiness. But then it also expresses who the worshiper is, even as he is a 
sinful human being. But then thirdly, it presents the answer to the problem. It presents the means and ways of reconciliation. Now, what this looked like in the Old Testament, just to remind ourselves of this, was that there were three important kinds of things that needed to take place in Old Testament worship. There was the tabernacle, which represented the presence of God. And then there was the Israelite worshiper who had his animal sacrifice. And then there was the priest who had to do the right things with that sacrifice. And so for an Old Testament saint, what did he know? What did he learn about worship? Well, he knew that if he sinned against God and he had sinned against God, then he was to take what the law prescribed in terms of an animal sacrifice. He had to make sure that it was a spotless animal, an animal without blemish. And he would bring it to the tabernacle, to the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. And he would bring that animal, prescribed for whatever sin he needed to confess, and then he would go to the priest. And he would have the priest examine the animal to make sure it was without any blemish. The priest would hear his confession of his sin. The priest would have him place his hand upon the animal's head, even as this confession of sin was taking place, and the animal would be slain by the priest, and the priest would take the blood and sprinkle the altar. Now, what did all that represent? We're told in the New Testament that all of that was forward-looking to the person and work of Christ. That Old Testament worship, the validity of it was to be found in the fact that it was a copy of heavenly things. It was in shadows and types that the fullness of the work of Christ would be presented. And Christ is the heart of worship. And Christ is the heart of confession. Because what reconciles the sinful human being to a righteous, holy God that enables worship whose purpose is ultimately for worship, is in fact what Jesus Christ himself has done. So the big question this morning, what we're looking at, is this. How can we, as human beings, worship a holy God? And the answer of Scripture is we're only able to because of Christ. He is our sacrifice as he is also our high priest. He is our sacrifice and high priest in relationship to our sin. So in worship, the element of confession is absolutely central because we understand confession to be confession that's grounded, rooted, centered in the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. Now, this truth, gospel-centered confession, which in many ways is the heart of of worship. And this text before us this morning presents several ideas and principles with respect to how are we to understand this gospel-centered confession in the context of worship. The important thing here is to remember, when we worship God rightly in this way, we will be preaching the gospel to ourselves, even in our activity of worship. Now, let's see how this presents itself in this passage. John is going to tell us of God, who God is as a holy God. John is going to tell us who we are as Christians who still sin. 
And John is going to tell us about Christ, of who Christ is, as the reconciliation that enables us to rightly, properly worship God. So we begin with what is first, who is God, or who God is. Now remember, confession, all of worship, all of worship, is a proper response to who God is. All of worship is reflective of who God is and what God has done. So all of worship is a proper response to who God is, and especially so in terms of confession. Because in verse 5, John declares that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, this word light for John represents the fullness of God's holy and moral perfection. That's John's way of saying that when we see God and when we see light, we see that he's absolutely spotless. There's, there's nothing that, that, that tarnishes anything of who God is. God is moral perfection. God is the perfection of holiness. God is the greatest of all possible good, the greatest of all possible holiness. God is light and dwells in, as Scripture says, unapproachable light. Moral perfection, the total opposite of everything that's sinful and evil. But that's a problem for us. The fact that God is light is a problem for every sinful, broken human being. Verse 6 tells us, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There's an incompatibility here that John is talking about. This is a holy God, but if we say we have fellowship with a holy God, but we actually walk in darkness, we lie. We're not practicing the truth. The incompatibility is an either-or. It is a strict either-or. There's no gradation between light and darkness in this sense. There's no gray theology here. Some spiritual demilitarized zone that we could possibly exist in. None at all. There is no fellowship of light with darkness, according to the scriptures. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 and 15, very clearly, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? The very nature of God stands in the way of any person who has moral imperfection. There can be no worship of God acceptably unless there is a reconciliation. That then leads to the second element in terms of understanding confession and worship. is the consideration of ourselves. Who are we as Christians, as Christian sinners who seek to worship? Now, John is going to present a couple of necessary ideas here about who we are. And then... Other scripture presents a third element that has to be included as well. I want us to note that in verses 8 and 10, what John has to say about how we are supposed to see ourselves. We're supposed to see ourselves properly. We're supposed to see ourselves accurately, honestly, truly. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, if we're deceiving ourselves, 
then the implication is we have got to rectify that by being honest with ourselves. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the Christian who thinks he hasn't sinned is affronting God himself. In fact, you're not just you're not just tarnishing God's reputation a little bit. You are saying that God's a liar. When you say you're not a sinful human being, you are saying God is a liar. When we protest our goodness instead of recognizing that we are morally defective, we are telling God that he lies about who we are. And, and John says it in very simple language, but the implications of this are incredibly profound. It forces us to realize that we have to see ourselves properly, rightly, honestly, truly, accurately. We must have an honest appraisal of ourselves. It would be easy to go off on a bit of a rant here about the self-esteem movement where the current narrative in our culture today encourages everyone to pat himself upon the back all the time in every situation, no matter how you've messed up. Show up, get the trophy. You don't show up before God and get the trophy. You don't. You show up before God and you've got to say, I have not made the grade. Like everyone else. By the way, sin is the great, greatest democratizer of all human beings. No one escapes the sentence of sin. For we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Falling short of the glory of God is a huge falling short. So that means in verse 9, we have to confess our sin honestly. What, what John says here, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, it's an honest confession of our sin, not lip service. Scripture does not care about lip service at all. It detests lip service. An honest confession of sin, which means what does that really look like? What does it mean for us to honestly confess our sin? Well, it means we need to confess the sinful state that we are in, the sinfulness of life. When David prayed his prayer in Psalm 51, you know, that terrible, tragic time in his life which he committed adultery and murder. When he goes before God and he's working out his true confession of his sinfulness before God. 51, Psalm 51, verse 5. He says this. That he was, he says, essentially, I can't, I, I was going to quote it to you, but I'm going to mess it up if I try I'm just going to tell you what the verse says. It says that he was born into a state of iniquity. He says, in sin, my mother conceived me. Not that she was sinful in conceiving him, but it means biblically in a state of sin, my mother conceived me. David 
was giving us insight into this doctrine of sin that goes all the way back to Adam, which we commonly call original sin. David is saying that from the very beginning of his existence, he was born into a state of fallenness before God. He wasn't conceived as some perfect little tyke. He wasn't born as some perfect little child. He had sin already inhering in him. Which explains then why all of us go bad. We're not just bad to the bone, but we're bad from the start. Now, when the, when the Bible teaches that, it, it's not to make our situation hopeless. It's to make our situation clearly seen in terms of its honesty. Because it's out of that that David then also acknowledges that every other sin has come into his own life. So David also was concerned about his particular sins before God, as we also must be. Now, have you ever had a day that you sort of wake up, you go through the day, and you don't feel particularly spiritual? If you're not nodding your head, I think you're lying to me. <laughs> On those days, the hardest thing for me is to confess sin. So, some years ago, I began thinking about how do I address that in my own life when I'm spiritually so dull to my own sin? Well, then as I began teaching, and every year taught what are God's two greatest commandments, you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, at least one second a day. No, 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 that's not what, that's not what Jesus meant. He meant that at every moment of your existence, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength needs to be directed toward loving God. So I realized, when I feel dull, my sin at that point is I really am not excited about God. Therefore, I really can't say that I'm loving God with everything that's in me at that moment. And then, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I doubt that I've ever loved anyone as much as I love myself. Julie goes... That's where we can begin. Recognizing that we fail to love God, we fail to love others. That's sin. But you know, in, in 1 John, he gives us some further instructions. If you go down to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, he talks about loving the world. And he says, don't love the world, know all the things that are in the world, because all that is in the world... And then he gives three particular concepts, and I like the King James the best here. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So, if you ever think that, that you don't know what to confess, here are five things to confess. Confess you don't love God the way you should. You violate the first and greatest commandment. Secondly, you don't love your neighbor as yourself. So you're violating the second greatest commandment. And then three, four, and five, realize that the desires of the flesh, the desires 
of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, in fact, pervade us all the time. So there's never a reason to really say, I don't really know what to do in this part of the worship service, or I really don't know what to do when I am having my personal time with God and I think about confession. To think on these things will make our sin clear. But beyond what John says here about honest confession and the confession of sin, there is the attitude of the heart which other passages in Scripture addresses. Isaiah says this, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The focus here is upon the idea of contrition. David, back in Psalm 51, verse 17, says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Contrition, a broken heart with respect to sin. In 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, while worldly grief produces death. Now, the point is, is that we must clearly recognize that we are sinful human beings. We must also then properly confess the fact that we are sinful human beings, both in terms of our original state as well as our actual sinfulness before God and the sins that we do. But there needs to be the heart attitude that Paul is talking about here, that Scripture endorses, that there needs to be a genuine sense of sorrow over what we've done because we have offended God. As David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Ultimately, all of our sin is an affront, an offense against God because God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, we, we know all that. We recognize then that gospel-centered confession is wrapped up in our ability to see God properly, wrapped up in our ability to see ourselves properly. We can even say all of this, and our heart can be right, but that does not yet mean, that does not yet comprise the truth of gospel-centered confession, because gospel-centered confession takes us further. It takes us in an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And that's what John does for us in this passage. John presents Jesus Christ, the righteous. That when we sin, he says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The biblical theme of worship and confession, recognition of who God is, Recognition of who we are before God. Thirdly, the means of reconciliation. How do sinful human beings worship a holy God? It is to be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So here's what John presents for us. 
He presents for us Jesus Christ as our advocate and Jesus Christ as our propitiation. Now, I want you to think about the significance of this word advocate. Uh, it's used of the Holy Spirit in John 14 and John uh, 16, where it's called the paraclete. That particular word in the Greek means one who is called alongside of another. It means one who actually stands and pleads the case of another. It's one who presents the defense for another. It's, it's one who intercedes, advocates, speaks on behalf of someone else. Jesus Christ is that someone who does that for us. Now, Christ is qualified to do that because he is, in fact, the righteous one. Scriptures declare Jesus never has to apologize about anything he's done wrong. The great wonder of Christ is he's pure and he's sinless and he's undefiled. And that's why he can be the one who speaks on our behalf. But it's also the, the fact that he's called to do so because as he was named, so is he. Jesus, which means God saves. The angel spoke to Joseph in the dream and said, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So even the name Jesus speaks to his qualification and his calling to be our advocate, the one who's going to speak on our behalf. But you see, advocacy, when one advocates for another, intercedes for another, it involves the element of petition. You've got a specific thing that you're asking about, you're asking for. And, and we're told here that Jesus is the advocate before the Father. He's making his petitions before the throne of the majesty on high. But every petition of this sort must have a basis. It must have a warrant. It must be sanctioned properly. It must have a justification. So on, on what, is this, what is the justice or warrant or, or, or the sanction by which Jesus is pleading on our behalf? This is critical. That basis is not found in us. The basis, the sanction, the grounding of all of Christ's petitions for us is found in his own work. Jesus makes intercession for us based upon his ministry, his sin-bearing, his sacrifice on our behalf. That's what it's grounded in, and that's what John mentions next. For Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. That's the warrant. That's the justification. That's the sanction for our Jesus making his advocacy on our behalf. Now, propitiation is, is one of the most wonderful words that we find in the New Testament. It's also in the Old Testament. It's only used four times in the New Testament, but it is perhaps one of the most powerful concepts as it applies to what Jesus did and applies to salvation. Uh, you need to consider everything that it accomplishes. Now, there's an Old Testament background to this idea of propitiation. There's even a Greco-Roman pagan background to this idea of propitiation. And it's really the same concept. 
A propitiation is that which turns away divine wrath. It was so for the pagans. It is so in the Old Testament. And it is especially so concerning Jesus Christ being our propitiation. In a biblical sense, see, God's wrath is present and just. It's his holy reaction against the sinfulness of human beings. In Romans 1.18, Paul says it this way. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's against that presence of God's wrath in this world against human beings that Jesus is the propitiation. So what does a propitiation do? What is its power? What is its nature? Well, in the first sense, in propitiation, you have this concept and idea of expiation. Now, these are words we don't commonly use. I'll give a quarter to anyone who's in normal conversation during the past we've used the word expiation. But it's an important word that we should not lose in terms of our understanding as Christians. Because an expiation is that which removes or atones for guilt. You know, Americans spend multi-millions of dollars going to psychiatric and psychological counselors every year to assuage their guilt. Guilt is still the number one mental health issue in America. So, expiation, that which can absolutely cancel and remove guilt, is of incredible significance because we all are morally guilty human beings. Even those who say they don't know God at all, even those who have an incredibly secular or postmodern perspective, uh, the philosophers, the existentialist philosophers, Camus, Sartre, they were very clear. Guilt is the neurosis of the modern man and the postmodern man. It can't be gotten rid of. But in what Jesus did, there's first and foremost an expiation. His death upon the cross is that which truly cancels the guilt for our sin. But secondly, not only does what Jesus do affect our state, it has its primary reference and focus ultimately to God. What can make a holy, holy, holy God, tender and compassionate toward those in whom there is darkness, while he is light. It's what Jesus did. It's what propitiation does. The debt gets paid for our sin. Justice gets satisfied in terms of God's moral law and upholding of the universe that way. And the wrath of God is not just turned away, it's turned away and extinguished. It is, in fact, appeased and pacified. It is removed for those who are under 
the blood of His Son. Now, what's the outcome? It's a full and finished atonement for our sin. It fully renders the Father favorable to us. And this is the substance of His advocacy before the throne. Listen carefully. When when John says, if anyone sins and God is light and in Him there's no darkness at all, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, an advocate who's interceding for us, who's pleading the, the, the sanction of his own work on our behalf. What's the outcome? What's the result of that? It's just simply this. Jesus directs the Father's gaze to his atonement for our sin rather than our sin. Jesus is always bidding that the Father would look at us as we are clothed in Christ, in the righteousness of His own Son. And when we are under the propitiation of Jesus Christ, Jesus is always interceding for us in this way. Charles Wesley one of the greatest of all hymn writers. Uh, we have this hymn in our hymnal number 305, Arise, My Soul Arise. Here's what he says in his concluding stanza of that great hymn. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. You know, the greatest fear that a child could ever have is that his dad would abandon him. The greatest fear we have as children is when our dads got angry at us. <laughs> Whoa, the wrath of my dad. <laughs> the scriptures pick up on that very common human experience. Because there is a greater reality in terms of God the Father and his wrath against a sinful world. And Jesus, fully removing that wrath from us who are under this propitiation in such a way that, that Wesley could say, His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child. I can no longer fear. And, and earlier, Wesley wrote what this is all based on in the second stanza. Speaking of Christ, he says, He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. Forgive Him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let this ransomed sinner die. Jesus, right now, right at this moment, is at the Father's right hand, continuing His saving ministry for you in terms of His intercession. As the high priest, at the right hand of the majesty on high, at the throne of grace, He is there in our time of need when we confess our sins, sympathetic, 
because he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. He hears our prayers. He hears our plea. And he intercedes for us. He reminds the Father constantly. Not who we are. But who we are in Christ. Not what we have done. But what he has done for us. So, confession. What an indispensable part of worship both privately and publicly. But we must confess our sin in light of the gospel. We must see our sin and sinfulness. We must understand and recognize that our own sin is ultimately the index of how great the grace of God happens to be. Those great sinners, those great sinners in history who have been saved have been able to see how large the grace is, how extensive the atonement and propitiation of Christ has been for them. The greater we see our sin, the greater we see our Savior, the greater we see His work for us. So gospel confession leads us through the gospel so that we rest our hearts in what Christ has done. So the hymn writer has said, not what my hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear the awful load. Your work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Your blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Your love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to Thee, can rid me of this darkened rest and set my spirit free. Your grace alone, O God, to me, can pardon, speak. Your power alone, O Son of God, can this poor bondage break. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength, save that which is divine, can bear me safely through. Gospel-centered confession. Amen. Father, help us by your grace to understand the greatness of Jesus in the face of our sin and to rest our hearts in what he has done for us. In his name, amen.